glad you guys are here this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I hope that you know that today is Mother's Day. Um, I, I know um, that some of you know, um, because this morning, this morning I was at Roth's um, getting some stuff. Uh, not for me, not for me or my wife. I was getting some donuts and stuff, but uh, I saw some of you there, and uh, we'll just keep that our little secret. Um, <laughs> normally, normally I'd have a um, little teaching monitor here that have all our verses on it. How many of you? How many of you on Friday lost power? Friday night, you guys lost power. Someone's telling me they went, you know, went and checked it all out, and there was like transformers that had blown up and were on the ground, like it was just like crazy and nutty. Um, well, if you if you don't know this, power outages are bad for electronics. And so normally I have a teaching monitor and now it's a decoration in the corner. So um, today as we go through verses, I, I just say that to say you, you can either follow along in your Bible or you're just going to have to trust um, that what I'm saying is actually in the Bible, but um, I still have my verses down here. So um, if you're joining us online, we're so glad you're joining us this morning. We're glad that uh, you took some time out today to worship with us together. I would encourage you, before we get going, to take a chance and connect with Tana. She's our online host right now, and uh, uh, she's awesome. If you, uh, you guys know Tana? Tana's awesome, um, and uh, uh, so you can get connected. Um, today is today's a holiday. Um, it's a holiday. Holidays uh, are interesting for most of... Um, for centuries and centuries after century, holidays were in every culture wrapped up in religion. Um, it comes from the phrase holy day, right? You probably know that, that a holiday is a holy day. And then as the church became less and less the center of culture as a whole, uh, we began to establish holidays or holy days that weren't church-centric, right? It began with like Passover and Yom Kippur um, and those types of things. And then it began like Christmas and Easter and, and um, Ascension and all these different holidays. And then we began to establish uh, other holidays or holy days. And, and if you look at the non-religious holy days or holidays that we celebrate, there's something really interesting about them is that every single one of them you see repeated after culture after culture after culture because they're celebrating something in them that feels almost otherworldly, that feels almost holy. Uh, whether it's Mother's Day or Father's Day or Veterans Day or Memorial Day or uh, Independence Day or Thanksgiving, that we as a culture, even apart from Jesus or the Bible or any relationship with God, we as a culture started going, there's something special about these moments. There's something special about this thing that we need to set apart, which is what holy literally means is to set apart. We need to set apart a day to honor this thing that feels, um, if I could even say, divine, that feels God-honoring, and that's what we do today in Mother's Days. We set apart a day because we recognize that in its best that there's something about the act of mothering that looks and feels even sacred. 
It's, it's not a surprise. We should, we should actually expect that cultures would do this, that cultures all around the world throughout human history would recognize that there's something sacred and beautiful in moments like this that should be honored, should have holy days. Ecclesiastes 3, it says this. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, He, being God, has set eternity in the human heart. That, that what, what the writer's telling us is that God has written on our soul some things that we should recognize that reverberate deep in our souls that are bigger than this world and this moment and this life that we live, that we can see things in this world that make us go, there's something more to this world than this temporal existence. There's something eternal and beautiful and even sacred amongst us. Uh, Paul catches on to this, Romans 1. Romans 1 is, um, Romans is this really intense book, and he, he builds out this argument that every single one of you, you probably know the verse, um, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But to acknowledge that everyone has missed the mark, he begins with an argument to say that everybody knows that there's a mark, that there's a, a line that we have failed to meet, that there's an expectation that we failed to meet. And so, um, you know, it talks about the Jews, and he's like, well, they got the law, they, they know that they messed up on the law. But in Romans 1, he says that even without the law, that God has, right, Ecclesiastes told us, God has written eternity on our heart, and we know some things about God and the way we should live. Romans 1, it says it this way. Romans 1 says this, ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and, hear this, hear this, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. They are perceived in the things that God has made. Here's what Paul's saying. That you don't even have to have a Bible or have to know the name of God to look around the world that he created and to be able to understand some of his divine nature. That in the things that he made that we can perceive some of his character. This, this is what it tells us in the story of creation in Genesis, right? Genesis, because I don't know if you know this, but we are a part of the created things. That, that when God created Everything that part of what he made was men and women. So Romans 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is called the Imago Dei. That in every single one of us, that there is a part of the character and nature of God that can be seen in a messy, blurry, muddy, chaotic, and busted, and marred by sin. Yes, but in every single one of us, we bear the stamp of part of God's character. And I think that part of one of those stamps of God's character, part of the image of God that we see, is what we celebrate in Mother's Day, is the act of mothering is a sacred and div divine act revealing the character and the nature of the God who made us. So it brings us to James. James give us what, um, what, what I, I like to call, and I'm just going to coin this so that when it becomes popular, um, I, I can get some copyright money, um, the mothering mandate. James 1, you've probably read it before or heard it quoted before. James 1 says this, what, the, what God the Father considers to be pure 
and genuine religion, right? What, what God sees as right act of, of obedience is this, to care for orphans and widows in their suffering or in their distress or in their pain. We as a church, we recognize that there is something divine and beautiful and holy and even sacred in the act of mothering. And then if we as the body of Christ, image bearers of God, are to demonstrate the character of who God is that we worship. Well, one theologian said this, and I think it's great. He said, um, he said, you only need to look as far as the man who worships to know the character of the God he worships. That if we are to be the reflection of the God that we worship, that we are called as a church body to be a people collectively as one body who mother well, who nurture and care for the overlooked, the oppressed, the unwanted, the rejected. Here's an interesting thing about the book of James. Um, James is, the book of James is written by James, which may seem self-evident, but that's not always the case. Um, it was written by James, and James was the half-brother of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing about James. Um, in ancient Near Eastern culture, in Greco-Roman society, you were an orphan if you did not have two parents. Um, you were defined as an orphan culturally if you did not have both your mother and your father. Now, in our society, we say you're an orphan if you don't have any, any parents, right? But in, in, in James's day, you were an orphan if you were just missing one. So if your mother died in childbearing or if your father died in war or from disease. Here's the thing that's interesting about James. James would have spent most of his life as an orphan. And his mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have spent most of her life as a widow. James writes these words calling the church to a compassionate kind of love and service for the most vulnerable, knowing what it meant to be an orphan, knowing what it meant to live with a widow for most of his life. If you're new here, if this is your first um, Mother's Day with us, you may not know this, but if you've been around before, uh, we invite, we challenge, we call people to the same thing every Mother's Day. It's to this mothering mandate. It's to be a kind of church that lives out the words of James 1.27, that, that sacrificially generously, above and beyond, demonstrates the good news, the graciousness of our God who has loved us and that we mother well. And so we invite, every single year, we invite um, all the church to do something. Now, here's the deal, okay? Um, what that something looks like for every single person is gonna look different. For some of you, the call that God's gonna put on you is gonna be to adopt, is going to be to make an incredibly huge lifetime sacrifice and commitment to another person to do as the gospel says. That when we were enemies, when we were abandoned, when we were alone, that God came and he gave us his name and declared us his sons and daughters. And that for some of you, God's going to call you to do that exact same thing, to live out the gospel in giving your name to someone and declaring them your son or daughter. And some of you, maybe it won't be for years or even decades that God will call, that, call you to that, but he will call you to make sacrifices today. Maybe you're in high school or college or, or in your 20s, and God's going to call you to make decisions today that leave space to prepare yourself for that choice. But I know 
Like adoption is a huge, long, big commitment. And that God's not gonna call everyone to adopt. So maybe he's gonna call you to adoption, but maybe he's gonna call you to be involved in the foster care system. Um, here's the deal. Here's the deal. There's a place for everybody in foster care. Um, some of you, God's gonna call you and he's gonna ask you in a season. My wife and I, this is our story. We spent years talking about, oh, you know what, someday... Someday, you know, I, th I think someday we should probably be involved in foster care. So, someday, and then we were at a concert, and we were, we were, we were talking on the way home, and we're like, uh-oh. Like, that someday has come this day, right? But for some of you, God's going to call you to foster care. He's going to call you to open your home for a season to a child for that season that needs someone to be their family. But you don't have to take in kids to be involved in the foster care system, um, the, the Chris, uh, he's actually got a table back there. Um, he, he's part of a, a, a group that does therapeutic foster care. It's kind of higher end stuff. Um, you can meet with him and you can talk with him. There's ways you can be involved. You can help. There, there's a thing called um, Salem Angels, right? Um, if you're a note taker or you want to get involved in foster care, you should Google Salem Angels and you should connect with them. Salem Angels, their whole thing is to help mobilize people in churches to come and you get assigned to a foster family and you just walk beside them. You know, maybe once a month you offer to buy them dinner or to bring them dinner. Maybe occasionally you bring them diapers. Maybe you um, do respite care. And so like once a month you say, hey, we're going to take care of all your kids and you can have a date night or whatever this kind of stuff is. Um, but there's ways for you to be involved even if you're not going to bring a child into your home, there's a thing called the lobby parent. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but um, when DHS takes kids out of homes, they don't schedule appointments to do so. They don't say, hey, at 4 o'clock on Tuesday, we're going to come pick up your kids. that work? that work for your schedule? Oh, let me check my schedule. I'm a little busy then. Could we do 4.30? Right? And what they do is they just show up in crisis and then they have to take these children. And what happens all the time if there's not a foster parent, if there's not, if there's not a, a lobby parent, is that that DHS caseworker, the CAP, CPS caseworker, has to take them to the DHS office in Dallas. And then they have to sit in a cubicle and that child, anywhere from a couple weeks old to 17 years old, sits in another cubicle, maybe four or five feet away. And this is the conversation that they hear over and over again as they sit there just feet away from this conversation. Hey! Hey, um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I know it's super late. I'm sorry to call. Um, we, we have a 14-year-old boy. Would you, would, you, would you be willing? This 14-year-old boy sitting four feet away, right? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I totally understand. I totally understand. I totally, no, 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 not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I totally understand. I totally understand. We'll, we'll, we'll reach out to someone else. Don't worry about it. Over and over until they find Placement. You know what a lobby parent does? A lobby parent just shows up in that moment in crisis and they just take that kid back into one of the rooms and they sit there and if the kid's old enough, they play some games, maybe they play some Xbox with them. If it's a baby, maybe they just sit there and they just hold the baby and they just whisper to the baby and they just sing to the baby. There's a place for all of us. Adoption, foster care, or child sponsorship. If you can't do any of those other things, you can write a check for 35 bucks a month to care for the practical needs of a child. And we got a booth right back there. You can get yourself signed up to do it. But here's, here's the deal. Every single one of us has a role to play if we're to be obedient to our king. Here's the crazy thing. You know what turned the world upside down about the early church? 
One of, the, one of the most dramatic things, if you read history, one of the things that shocked the world the most about the early church was this. Um, in, in Roman culture, there was a thing that was legal called exposure. And, and what exposure meant was that up to a certain age, after a child is born, healthy or otherwise, you could take a child, legally, you could take a child, um, as long as you didn't name them, you could take a child and you could put them out in the forest and just leave them. That happened all the time. It happened all the time because of um, unhealthy ways that the child came about. It happened because a family had too many kids and they couldn't care for uh, another child. It happened because the child was illegitimate. It happened because the child was the wrong gender. And they would leave the child out in the woods, in the darkness of the woods, outside their city, so that they would freeze to death out there that night or a wild animal would come eat them. And one of the things that turned the world upside down was these Christ followers who at sunset would go and walk through the forest listening for the cries of children. And they would take these children that nobody else wanted and they would call them their own. Church, we have an opportunity again to turn the world upside down with the demonstration of the love of God. I mean, isn't that the gospel? That God left the comfort of his home to come after us into the wilderness, into the darkness, to find us who were not his who are enemies, to take us and to call us his own. Church, every single one of us has a place to play. Now, here's the deal. Most of the time, like with foster care, it's messy. It's far messier than Instagram looks like. When you're working with people in their worst moments, in the most broken moments of their life, in catastrophic places, a lot of times it's just messy and painful, and it's a huge sacrifice. But sometimes... Sometimes God does incredible works in those really messy, ugly places, and that's what we pray for. And uh, we've been doing this long enough that we've had a chance to be part of some really cool stories, and so um, with the time left, I, I actually wanna show you a story of some people that have been a part of this church um, and some really incredible things that God did in redeeming and restoring when we, oh, when we listened to and responded to the mandate to mother well. So let's watch this video. Soren Drum, Idaho. Um, there's me, Ryan, our daughters, Audrey and Sue, and then our dog. Audrey is nine, um, almost 10, and Serenity is eight, almost nine. I grew up like 12 miles from here in Wendell. Um, it was great, honestly. I was raised by my dad, he was a single dad. Had everything I wanted, he worked hard, you know, he provided for me. Um, my mom was an addict, so my dad got sole custody when I was two, and we moved to Idaho. My mom would create a lot of chaos um, on and off throughout the years. In, in 2006, my dad started having heart problems. So we moved to Oregon because they had better heart doctors. My dad has a daughter with another woman who's older than me and we moved in with her. It was hard. My sister and I never really got along because I grew up with my dad and she grew up with her mom. Moving there and switching schools your freshman year of high school um, was hard. I think, you know, trauma and trying to deal with that and then falling in with the wrong crowds at school, um, just the wrong people experimenting with the wrong things, and then you find something that numbs that pain, and that's where it started. Moving to Oregon, I was at an age where I was able to form a relationship with my mom. Um, she was still an addict, and so that's kind of how our relationship formed was using 
it wasn't like the ideal relationship, but it was something. It was something. I think like a lot of it was it filled it filled that void of not having my mom for so long. I was experimenting because um, when you first start, it's recreational. You know, you don't you you use for fun and then you become dependent. And so at that point in my life, I was like 15. I don't think that I would. I mean, I was becoming an addict. Yeah. I remember I was at her house this one time and this guy knocked on the door and he wanted drugs and my mom sold drugs and she's like, I can't right now. And I remember him being upset and she closed the door and I was like, I already know what he wants. I was like, you might as well just do it. And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I know that you're selling drugs. I know that you're doing drugs. And she's like, how do you know? I was like, mom, I use drugs. It's obvious. Like, I know I can see the signs. And we just kind of laughed about it. Um, but I think that was like the first time I told her, I was like, I'm not, I'm not stupid. And then she, it, and then it was a different playing level. Living in state with my dad, um, I was using drugs, um, on and off from 15 till, well, forever. <laughs> but so I, my dad would kick me out and I'd be homeless bouncing around. Um, and then I met the girls' dad and we started dating and um, using together. It was really toxic from the very beginning. Um, I got pregnant after two months and then I had Audrey. <laughs> you know, being an addict because by then, at 19, I was full-blown addict, using every day. Um, so like, I got pregnant with her, and I almost felt saved, in a sense. Because if it weren't for her, I probably wouldn't be here. Um, and so, you know, I got I, I quit cold turkey. I quit using. I was sober my entire pregnancy with Audrey. And I thought, like, hey, like this is this is it. You know, we can like parent sober, and like we can be parents. Unfortunately, um, her dad used my entire pregnancy. And after we had Audrey, he made this fancy dinner. And I thought it was like, oh, like super romantic. And then he was like, hey, let's get high. And he's like, it's just one time. It's just one time. And then from there, it just, it unraveled again. We had, we got pregnant with Serenity. Um, unfortunately with Sue, I was already like, I hated life. I hated life. I hated living with him. I hated being with him. I was so unhappy and miserable and like trying to find a way out. Every time that I would try and leave, um, it was baby, I'm sorry. I'll change. I'll change. I'll do better. You know, and you just remain hopeful. Every time I would leave, I'd go right back. Um, with Sue, I debated abortion a lot of my pregnancy, like all the way through. Unfortunately with her, he didn't stop using either. And so at that point, already being so unhappy, I was like, if you're gonna use in my house, then I'm using too, you know? Like, and so I used my whole pregnancy with Sue. I don't know how, God is how, cause I don't know how she didn't test dirty when she was born, but she didn't. There's, it's a miracle, cause I, there's no explanation. Six months after she was born, I finally left. I got the nerve to leave him for good. And that was the best thing that ever happened, in a sense. Now, 
No, that was the start of the best thing. <laughs> I actually called family for help before DHS ever got involved. It was like my first real cry for help. I think I was like silently crying inside all the time. I knew that I couldn't physically take care of my kids. Um, something was wrong. So I called their dad's family and was like, please come get them, I need, I need help. I was like, I need help. Um, and then my dad took me to the hospital and made me stay with him and he was like, this is it, you're getting clean, this is the end of it. Like, he's like, and you need to get your kids back. So I got the girls back from them. Um, well, at that point, DHS had kind of like stepped in. They were like wanting to take the girls. I was like, the girls are gone. They're with family. So they did a 10 day protective hold. And I spent that Mother's Day alone and like being freshly sober. Um, honestly, I went and used, <laughs> like I went and used. Um, I get them back from that 10 days. Me and my dad get in a fight. Um, my dad was drinking a lot at that time. And so we got in a fight and I didn't have my apartment. I had lost my apartment by then and I was living with my dad. And so me and the girls jetted to Salem and I went and stayed with my cousin, Margaret. And then the girls' dad showed up and was like, had filed taxes and claimed us all fraudulently and was like, I'll get you into a place. We'll get blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, whatever. And one thing led to another. And then the girls' or his family came and got the girls from us at a hotel in Albany. And Shane and I were coming down one day in Salem and it was like really early in the morning and he was like yelling at me. Um, and this old lady, thank, bless her heart, this old lady with her dog, walking her dog, heard and called the cops. And he, they showed up and he ran and they ran my name and they're like, you know that DHS is trying to get a hold of you, right? Yeah, we have custody of your kids. They're gonna stay with blah, blah, blah for, so, for now and which was family and um, we need you to come to court. And so then I had a court date and that's where all of that started. It was terrifying knowing that my children were going into a home where I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what to expect. You know, these people have your kids and you don't know who they are or anything about them and you don't really get to see them at visits. Like your kids are already in a room when you get to that visit. Actually, when we got into foster care, we were in the process of adopting internationally and it was taking a long time. And so uh, somebody came to me one day and just handed me uh, an application for foster care and said, we need families. I told them you would do it. And um, so that's really how we got into foster care. I called Zach, I was like, looks like we're doing foster care. I'll go ahead and fill out the application. And Zach was like, sure. Originally, um, I just really felt like there were kids um, within our own community that were in a place in their lives that needed families to step up, whether um, just for a short term or for long term. Um, and, and so that was my initial goal for doing foster care, is just knowing that children needed families. Um, as we did foster care, um, my goal kind of changed and it um, progressed into uh, having relationships with them, with the birth moms and the families of the kids. And that's really actually what's really tug on my heart, tugged on my heart um, during our foster care journey. There was one time, it was Audrey's birthday and um, Emily was actually at the visit and we like, I had, Ryan had actually bought Audrey a birthday present and so we were giving it to her and I had like this cupcake for Audrey and like we sang happy birthday together and my sister was there and so, um, and Emily was like, we're here for you, you know, we're cheering you on and we're praying for you and I was like, 
Okay. I was like, that that means something. Cause like coming from a stranger that has your children, you know, my thought was they're looking at me like, oh, she's an addict, you know, like, is she ever gonna get it together? And so to know that like someone was cheering me on that I didn't know was pretty awesome. <laughs> my name is Carissa and I've been doing foster care for about six years. We decided to do foster care mostly um, for kind of like a family reason. We needed to possibly be a resource for a family member. That didn't happen. So then we just decided, you know what, we know too much. <laughs> so we kind of just finished our certification and then we became certified. Emily had them, but Emily had a lot going on and we didn't have a placement. And so I was like, we can take them. <laughs> um, and she was like, okay, perfect. So then we took them and then we kind of all just like together, like Emily was a huge support for us because we at that point were kind of newer to foster care and we had just take, taken on two little girls and I knew nothing about having little girls. So um, Emily was a great support for us and then we kind of all just loved on her together, which was actually really hard <laughs> at first. Um, not because of her, but mostly because of, I mean, me, I guess, kind of like, I know I'm a broken, busted person, but it's really hard to kind of go back to that and love a broken, busted person sometimes um, when it's more like, in your face. Honestly, I had my own issues and I was like, oh, she's better than me. Cause like, she was just put together. She looked really young. Um, and I was like, who is this woman? I was like, this woman has my kids. And like, they were calling her mom and it like really hurt me. And I was like, it was not like, the it wasn't ideal at first. I was like, who in the heck is this woman? That my mom kids are calling mom and they're calling me Cheyenne. But then, Krista got so vulnerable with me. It was, uh, I think, a pickup or a drop-off at the park. I think it was a pickup. And she kind of just gave me, like, a little bit of history and backstory of her and Aaron and their family. And, like, just, it was so relatable. I just was super open with her about, like, my past and things that I have gone through and how they were really similar to her. We both sat there and we both bawled. And I think, like, that was mine and Krista's really, like, bonding moment. And then from there on, I was just like, okay, I need to be more like this woman. Like she, you know, she can help me. And the door just kind of opened for us to have a relationship with her and help that plan um, for the girls to go home work. But you don't think you really have people supporting you and praying for you. And like, you're not even praying for yourself in the depths of it. So to know that people you don't know are praying for you and your kids is pretty awesome. have that at play and watch that. <laughs> it's about two seconds of just a blindness. Oh my gosh, are you making me cry? <laughs> I'm gonna cry before I even watch it. Mm. Okay. Okay. Emily, thank you for, for being for me, Carissa, that day at the park when I don't even remember if it was a drop off or a pickup, but I remember when there was, there was just tension. There was so much tension. And I think a lot of that was me um, thinking that you thought you were better than me or, you know, all those self-doubt thoughts that I had. Thank you for letting me know on Audrey's birthday in that visit that you guys are voting for me and praying for me and supporting me and really showing me that not everyone in the foster care system is the same. But when we were sitting on that park bench and you you told me like your story and Aaron's story and just a little bit of like backstory on your family, 
it gave me so, so much hope. And I'm like forever, I'm gonna cry. I'm forever grateful that the girls had you and that I have you in our lives. Okay, I don't wanna cry. Without you guys, like I probably wouldn't be here today with my girls. We, we love you and we cherish every single moment that you took with them and with me. Krista, thank you for being vulnerable with me. Thank you for opening up and sharing your story and your family's story um, with me, giving me the hope to, to be the mom that I am today for the girls. We love you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I had no idea you were gonna do that to me. <laughs> Leading out my sniffling. <laughs> I feel like if it is, if there's some, if God is nudging you in a way um, that it is 100% worth it. Do I think that every family should be a foster family or a resource family? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I do think there's a place for everyone uh, to participate in foster care, and that hands down you will not regret it. It may be hard and it may be long, and um, but you will not regret it. Just now knowing Jesus and then kind of putting it into play like these children and what they're going through and what they've had to go through, it's kind of like, how do we not do it? I know a lot of people say like, oh, it's not for everyone, or but I'm like, how can it not be? <laughs> if you love Jesus and you're not doing foster care, you're not somehow um, doing something related to that, then I just, I don't get it. I think it was everything, because um, the girls had gone to church with Zach and Emily and Aaron and Carissa, and they had already like bonded and formed relationships with people within the church, and so, and people in the church kind of knew my story a little bit through Aaron and Chris and Zach and Emily and so like seeing or going to a church where they knew them and then now I'm in the picture it was really cool to know that like a whole church was supporting us the whole time. There's uh, a place and a need for you. And I don't know if God's calling you to adoption, to be involved in the foster care system, or to child sponsorship, um, but he's calling all of us to something. He's calling all of us to model the same kind of compassion and nurturing heart that he's demonstrated to us that we see so beautifully in mothers and in their way that they love and care for the overlooked and the unwanted and the rejected and the hurting and those who are suffering. Just this week, in fact, um, a family in our church, you know, I mentioned earlier the Salem Angels Group. It's an awesome group. Um, if you want some information, you can just Google Salem Angels and, and I'm sure it'll pop up and you can find them. And they do really incredible things. And really all that they do is their goal is they pair um, people from churches with families that foster. 
And uh, they kind of let that relationship figure out how they can help. You know, maybe, maybe once a month they're doing a meal. Maybe once a month they're doing a date night with them. Maybe, you know, whatever. They're, they're finding ways to partner with them. And, and just this week, one of the families in our church that uh, fosters had a meeting with them. They'd been referred to them. And um, the, the uh, caseworker for Salem Angels sat with them and they heard their story and they heard about needs they had and all this kind of stuff. And, and then this is how the conversation ended. They said, um, we really want to help. We just don't have enough people. And when we get some more volunteers, we'll assign someone to you. But right now, we just don't have anyone. Church, this is our place. This is our opportunity to turn the world upside down, to demonstrate the reckless, amazing love of our God. A God who, who just like the early church did, went out into the forest, into the wilderness to find us, to give us his name and to call us sons and daughters. And now it's our turn. I don't know what that role looks like for you, but every single one of us has a part to play and a place to play.